Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. Merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store, and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Oz Davis, host of the Truly the Goats podcast. For episode 11, I interviewed author Dennis Crawford. Dennis is the writer of three books based in part at least on professional football in Tampa, Florida. His third and most recently based book is the autobiographical work The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett, published by McFarland. The following is my entire unexpurgated interview with Dennis. Well, okay, not completely unexpurgated. I took out a couple of, um, added a couple of transitional scratches, but, but it's very close. Enjoy. Dennis Crawford, thanks for joining us on Truly the Goats. It is an honor to have been invited. Oh, an honor. Thank you very much. Let's get right into it. Tell me about your first two books and about this third book, The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bass. My first book was on the 1979 Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers. It was called McKay's Men, and it was all about their first playoff team, you know, how they went from worst to first. And then I uh, did a follow-up book also on the Buccaneers called Hugh Culverhouse and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, because I I discovered that even though the team was awful, their owner was a fascinating, you know, fascinating man, deeply flawed, not a good football owner, um, but just an amazing mover and shaker in the NFL. And I did not realize how much power he wielded in the NFL. So that was my second book. And then um, for Bassett, uh, I just, you know, kind of remembered the, the, the bandits. My, my goal was to write a history of the bandits, but then I realized Mm -hmm. I wanted to write a book about the bandits because they were a fun team and they were my first true sports love because I was there. I, I remember their inception. I remember when Burt right. Reynolds was on TV telling everybody to go, oh, come yeah. and buy bandit tickets. And uh, I remember, you know, those were the first pro football games I ever went to were USFL games. And, you know, seeing the lone horseman come riding in, shooting off his gun and uh, Jim Neighbors, you know, Gomer Pyle is down there singing the national anthem. And so I just was, I was like, Oh, I got to tell the story of this team. And then I realized the man who owned them was the star. He was the story. He he was going to carry this book. And I just did more and more digging. And I realized that the, the bandits were like the culmination of 15 years of effort on his part to create a new kind of professional sports team. And, and then also there's just like that, that Greek tragedy part of it that, you know, the bandits died as he died. Um, I was like, my goodness, you couldn't, you know, a Hollywood scriptwriter wouldn't have been able to create somebody like Johnny F. Bassett. He had to have just been 
born, you know? So, so that's where I went. I, you know, I wanted to learn as much about this, this, this maverick as I could. And hopefully people will enjoy his story. Cause I, I, I think people will find themselves in all of his efforts. PR material for your book calls Bassett one of the most influential sportsmen of the late 20th century. Now, I realize you don't write the press material for your own work. However, can you expound upon that statement a little bit, especially given that Bassett never really played on any professional level? Yes. Uh, By influence, what I mean is did he make or instigate change? And from that regard, Johnny F. Bassett did. Um, Although his teams never won a playoff series or uh, won a championship of any kind, the modern NFL and NHL were forever altered by the efforts he put into upstart leagues. Um, We have teams playing hockey in cities such as Tampa Bay, in Dallas, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. If Bassett doesn't prove that he can sell hockey in Birmingham, Alabama, then I don't know that those teams are there today. Um, The Buccaneers in Tampa have a Pirate-themed football stadium now. It's like you walk into a Pirates of Caribbean set when you go to a Buccaneers game. In the 1980s, Bassett brought to Tampa showmanship. Uh, He brought Hollywood to Tampa in the way of Burt Reynolds as his co-owner, inviting Lonnie Anderson to be part of the marketing team, playing up the uh, Smokey and the Bandit genre of his co-owner so that when he went to a Bandits game, it was almost like walking into a Hollywood set. So that's the influence that um, we get to. You compare and contrast in your book Bassett and P.T. Barnum. Now, of course, this is a, a an old comparison. I mean, even in the book, you quote Bassett's son as saying that people called him the Canadian Barnum. What's that comparison in brief? Well, Barnum has a bit of a mythology about him. Uh, it's one of those things where it's apocryphal, and I don't know that it's accurate that he really did say there's a sucker born every minute. Um but he did sell humbug. He sold spectacle. Um, you know, whether you're talking about uh, claiming that Josie Heth was a 118-year-old nursemaid of George Washington when he put her on display or any of the amazing things he put in the American uh, Museum, he was selling an experience to his audience and leaving it up to you to determine whether or not it was, it was factual. And Bassett, in the beginning of his career, was viewed as a Barnum-esque figure. I found that a little unfair in that he wasn't selling humbug. He wasn't conning people, uh, so to speak, the way that Barnum could. But he was trying to sell sports as spectacle. He felt that the um, ticket buyer deserved more than just a game for the price of their admission. You know, they deserved a full uh, sensory experience. Bassett's first 
foray into the world of professional sports management was his sort of attempt to organize an IndyCar race within Toronto city limits, including laps, I guess, around the Toronto Argonaut Stadium. Tell us in brief how that went. It did not go well. (laughs) It was Bassett's, I think it was Bassett's first introduction to the labyrinthine nature of civic politics in Toronto at that time. Um, Ontario had built a a wonderful facility just outside of the city limits called Mo Sports, where um, IndyCar races uh, were being held. But Bassett saw a Grand Prix-style race held in Montreal and decided, I want something like that for the city of Toronto. You know, Toronto is a a barren sports landscape when the Leafs are not playing. You know, this is in the 60s, so you have Montreal, I'm sorry, Toronto Maple Leaf hockey, you got the Argonauts, and then Bassett says, you have seven months of nothing else. And so he wanted to bring spectacle to the lakeshore. So he worked with uh, various friends of his. They formed a small industry called Lakeshore Racing, and he established a two and a half mile serpentine court course uh, right along the lakeshore of Toronto, including having not just going around Exhibition Stadium, but having the cars race over the playing surface of Exhibition Stadium. And many of his Uh, Fellow citizens of Toronto were appalled by this because you're going to take away our parklands and you're going to have this loud auto race just down the road from people's houses and you're contravening the Lord's Day. And and Bassett's really trying his best to satisfy everything, saying, oh, oh no, we're going to hold it later in the day. I'm not going to stop people from getting to church on time. Um, It's completely safe. It's only this one day of the year. We're going to be able to bring 250,000 people here. It'll be a great show. And um, he just slowly loses each battle going forward. And I think he becomes relatively chastened by the experience. You know, he had hosted a couple of races. He and his father with the Toronto Telegram hosted the the IndyCar races at Mo Sport. So this kills off his, his dream of a big race. And what's ironic is that shortly after Bassett dies in 1986, a course very similar to that is instituted, and the I believe it's the the Molson Molson race. But shortly after Bassett dies in uh, in 1986, a course similar to the one he designed is used for an IndyCar race on the lakeshore of Toronto, and they actually award a trophy in his name to the winner of the race. So. Um, this is another example of his influence. He was just too far ahead of his time. The, the politics of Toronto in the 1960s had not caught up to somebody with that level of sporting imagination. Um, but in 1986, Toronto had grown more cosmopolitan. You have the Blue Jays as well as the Leafs. You have um, a burgeoning race uh, enthusiasts, you know, the most sports auto park is used even more. It just took a while for the city to catch up with Bassett. Yeah. Since, since Bassett's time, Toronto has won two world series and one NBA championship. Uh, the, the Leafs may finally be becoming 
relevant again, and uh, the Argonauts, who were the big draw, are almost irrelevant now. Quite a flip there in Toronto sports history. Bassett loses four, five, six million on the Toronto slash Birmingham hockey experiment. When the WHA merges into the NHL, his team has not chosen to merge. Would you consider his tenure in that league a success or a failure? I would consider him to be like Apollo 13 in that he was a successful failure. Financially, mm. uh, he took quite a beating, although he became whole at the end. When the NHL and WHA merged, those teams that were not invited along did receive financial settlements, and and those settlements helped him not only pay off the debts he accumulated with the Toros and Bulls, but also those he was still carrying over from his World Football League adventure. Now, the reason why I say successful as opposed to failure is because he did prove some very important points. He did prove that even in Toronto, the spiritual center of hockey in English-speaking Canada, it would support a second team. Um, attendance wasn't really a problem. He was, he was getting close to 10,000 uh, per game in Toronto. Uh, the issue was not being able to find an arena of his own. Um, he was willing to put money into the CNE Center. He was willing to work with uh, developers to try and find a suitable place in Toronto so that the Toros could have a home of their own because paying an exorbitant amount of rent to Harold Ballard to play at Maple Leaf Gardens was just a crushing commitment that over time drove him out of the city. So his his belief that the city could support two teams was bearing out. It's the infrastructure of the city couldn't support two teams at that time. The fan base could. And he was also accurate in his belief that a European style of play would appeal. Uh, the NHL at that time was uh, very limited athletically, said the man who cannot skate. But it was still a lot of <laughs> clutching and grabbing and the broad street bullies and physical intimidation and neutral zone traps. But um, the WHA really wanted a free-flowing style and also invited a lot of European players to come and play. Um, European players were looked down upon at the time by the NHL as being uh, too finesse-oriented and not physical enough. And Bassett reaches out and brings Vaclav Nedimansky and Richard Farda from Czechoslovakia. He helps them defect uh, to Canada to bring their style of play. Um, he helps open up the Canadian juniors, the NHL had an agreement where they would not sign these 16 to 20 year old Canadian junior players. Um, it was actually Colleen Howe, uh, Gordy Howe's wife, who found a, uh, a loophole that allowed Marty and Mark Howe to play for the Houston Arrows. And once that loophole was opened, Bassett dove through with both feet and was signing as many 
of members of the Toronto Marlboros, the the junior team, the very popular junior team in uh, Toronto, also known as the Marlies, you know, getting Wayne Dillon to sign. Wayne Dillon, people had been dreaming about what it would be like when Wayne Dillon would finally put on a maple leaf sweater and Johnny Bassett swoops in and puts a Toro sweater on him instead. And Dillon ends up being a very productive player at an amazingly young age. So, so Bassett is successful in that regard, and he moves to Birmingham, and people are laughing. It's, how can you move to Birmingham? How are you going to sell hockey in the seat of the Confederacy of all places? The Atlanta Flames are struggling. They'll eventually move to Calgary. You cannot sell hockey to this audience, and Bassett just accepts it as a personal challenge. And within two years, you've got 12,000 people with very thick southern accents going, that's icing! Or, you know, chanting defense. Johnny Bassett, uh, his son, also John Bassett, was claiming this is the first time he'd ever gone to a hockey game and heard people chanting defense like they were at a Crimson Tide game. And so uh, Bassett proves that he's right again. The, The failure is that Bassett's proving that he's right alienates him from many of the powers that be in the NHL, particularly Harold Ballard, who was the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He he took market share away from Harold Ballard, and you don't do that to Harold Ballard. You don't take money out of his pocket and expect to have a long and fruitful life in hockey. And so Bassett's not invited to join the merged leagues. So in that way, it's a failure because Bassett doesn't get the ultimate prize of an NHL franchise. But I'm thinking as a romantic and as somebody who loves these kinds of stories, he was really successful because now the NHL is in the South. And 18-year-olds and Europeans do regularly play in the NHL. And so it's it's a successful failure. A lot of Bassett's ventures involve placing a second team in a major city. When he tried to get a stake in the World Football League, he put in the Toronto Northmen. And thus, as you put it in your book, touched off this wave of anti-Americanism among some Canadian politicians. But did Canadian politicians, did the national government have an argument vis-a-vis the Toronto Northmen versus the CFL? Well, first off, let me break that down into the component parts. I I would say that it's not so much that Bassett wanted to always go head-to-head when there was another team in town. It's because he was a passionate citizen of those places he called home. He was a native Torontonian. He loved Toronto. He adored that city. And he just felt it deserved better sports-wise. He, he felt it deserved the auto race. He felt it deserved an American-style football team because it would get people excited. He felt that you know, the Maple Leafs had their place, but that there was an underserved population in Toronto who wanted a different style of hockey, and he was ready to give it to them. So I, I don't think he was necessarily trying to be a pain in the ass to entrench teams, he truly loved Toronto, and he regularly vacationed in Tampa. They they lived just south of Tampa 
uh, part-time of the year for many years. So it's not so much he wanted to challenge the Buccaneers as he loved Tampa. And so he felt Tampa really deserved to be in on this exciting ground floor opportunity. But um, uh, getting back to uh, the second part of your question, the Canadian government had a point to a degree in that the CFL was a very carefully balanced structure. The CFL uh, at one time, uh, up until I'd say the late 1950s, was on par with the National Football League. They often competed uh, for the same players. And uh, sometimes when an NFL player would get tired of their contract, uh, they would play it out and jump to Canada. And some Canadian players would do the same thing. And so there was a level of equity between the two leagues. And they had a, you know, they even crafted a um, non-aggression pact during that time when Sam the Rifle Echeverry it looked like he was going to leave the Canadian League and go play for the Chicago Cardinals. And that was setting off shockwaves. We get to the 1960s. Pete Rozelle figures out television. We have the merger of the AFL and NFL. The Super Bowl becomes an unofficial national holiday. All of a sudden, NFL is viewed as being a far superior league, and American-style football is viewed as being a very, very superior style um, to the point that at one time the Canadian Rugby Union refused to allow forward passes because it would make us look too American. So when you get to the 70s and Bassett is unveiling the Toronto Northmen who are going to play an American style of football and he has signed three members of the back-to-back Super Bowl champion Dolphins to play for this franchise, a lot of teams in Canada are very worried because, as I mentioned, there's a very special balance. The, the teams that are largely in the western provinces, Calgary and the British Columbia Lions and Minton, are largely non-profit organizations, very similar to the Green Bay Packers, whereas you get the teams in the eastern provinces, the Toronto Argonauts and the Montreal Alouettes, they're for-profit in major media centers, and the money that they make is split evenly with the teams out west. It was a process called gate equalization. And if Toronto's Argonauts are now going to compete with an American-style football team, the CFL is scared that that's going to impact the amount of money the Argonauts make per year, and if the Argonauts make less money, the CFL makes less money. And so there's a financial stake there. Um, Mark Lalonde, uh, Pierre Trudeau's Minister of Health and Welfare, also argues that because Canadian football is the only sport played in Canada that is uniquely Canadian, that it needs to be protected. And so he and several members of Parliament, mostly representing the 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 provinces in which there are the nonprofit CFL teams craft a bill called the Canadian Football League Act, which was actually going to outlaw American-style football. And it was strictly to prevent Johnny Bassett and his team from establishing a foothold in Toronto. All right. It's elephant in the room time. Okay. I guess almost almost literally elephant in the room. 
<laughs> so much has been written about the USFL and specifically what led to the demise of the USFL, which by all accounts, many, many, many millions of Americans loved very much, myself mm-hmm. among them, yourself among them, uh, yeah. being young folks at the time. Why this failed, the backroom machinations, the overexpansion, whatever. There's been a million ways uh, to talk about this. There's, there's been a million things said about this. So I'm just going to give you three words and you can go. Bassett versus Trump. <laughs> well, I've, I've always loathed to, to talk too much um, about Trump. <laughs> Gee, why? In the last five years, he has tended to – I'm not making a political statement. Everybody's politics are their own. But even whether, whether you're a diehard Republican or a die-in-the-wool Democrat, you have to admit the man sucks all the oxygen out of every topic. But you cannot tell the history of the USFL without Bassett v. Trump. You also cannot look at those battles and not think 30 years later the entire nation is going to be engaged in similar style battles uh, during the Trump presidency. There were lies, truth, truth misrepresented, and half-lies. Uh, all throughout this battle. Um, Donald Trump comes into the league in 1984. He purchases the New Jersey Generals because um, the owner of the team, J. Walter Duncan, just wants out. You know, He's an Oklahoma oil man, and he has no interest really in staying in New Jersey. He only took the franchise to help the league get started. And Bassett is a big believer in a salary cap in establishing spring as the season. You know, we build our business slowly and over a few years, we will eventually get to the point where the NFL will have to uh, as absorb some of us and let us be NFL teams or allow us to continue in the spring, but somehow come in under the NFL umbrella as some kind of a minor league system or feeder system. Trump comes in and immediately wants to move the entire operation to the fall and compete head-to-head, believing that he could force the merger much more quickly and increase the value of all of the clubs. And so that fundamental difference between the two is always going to be at the heart of it. But what a lot of people don't appreciate and don't want to give enough credit for is the fact that Trump was not always an enemy of Bassett. The two of them actually had a lot in common. And I know know that made some people I interviewed uncomfortable when I would point that out, but they were, they're both the signs of very successful fathers. You know, um, Donald Trump's dad was a millionaire. Bassett's dad uh, was a millionaire. You know, they both were brought up in large empires, so to speak. Uh, They're both brash. They both know how to turn a quote. They both know how to get on both the front page and the back page of newspapers. Um, Where they differ, though, is on their fundamental operating philosophy. Bassett was very blunt and honest and a straight shooter and always put the league first, whereas Trump was brash would pretty much say anything that needed to be said 
to get his way and would stab you in the back <laughs> the minute he he felt you were of no more use to him. And so that starts this divide uh, because originally Bassett was very excited to see Trump come into the USFL because he saved the New York area franchise. And you cannot have a major sports league in the United States unless you have a significant presence in the New York area. And if Trump didn't come in, the USFL was going to lose that franchise. So they, they're friendly at first. But then when Trump starts advocating for getting rid of spring play, getting rid of salary caps, that's where it turns sideways. The name of the book is The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett, author Dennis Crawford. Thanks for coming on to Truly the Coach. Well, thank today. you very much for your time. And I just want it to be said that Johnny F. Bassett was a dreamer, but he was a very practical dreamer. And I think we all owe a debt of gratitude for those people who didn't necessarily win on the field, but without whose efforts the games we love to watch today would be radically less than what they could have been. This has been an extra edition of Truly the Goats, Sports History Network podcast. Thanks again to our guest, Dennis Crawford. His latest book, The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett, is available at mcfarlandpub.com. Our theme song is Fun on Street, Greatest Remix of All Time, produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. This is Oz Davis for the Truly the Goats podcast. Until next time, stay healthy and stay historical. sports history fan this is arnie chapman aka the football history dude and i hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the sports history network and we're able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets i started the sports history network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history. But as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment. You know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website. But we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com.
You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.